production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Mark Nepo is a poet and teacher. His ancient stories, fables and wisdom from some of our greatest spiritual texts are portals to honest and dignified conversations. They help us grapple with present wounds and longings that we aren't able to make sense of now. He reminds us that life and death, mystery and order are so much more curious and more plentiful than we can comprehend. My conversation with Mark traverses many realms, the journey of inner transformation, the life of relationships, and how suffering is integral to the human experience. To be broken is no reason to see all things as broken. You know, we tend as human beings very naturally to project our experience onto the world. If I'm broken, the world's a broken place. If I'm afraid, the world's a fearful place. And what I've learned through that journey and since is all things are true. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Mark Nepo is the best-selling author of many books, including The Book of Awakening and The Book of Soul. This powerful exchange delves into theological and mystical depths that help heal the enduring dramas of life. We also discuss why having a spiritual toolbox is essential to living a self-actualized life of presence, purpose and contentment. With the chaos of the world being all-consuming, may this conversation serve the purpose to renew and restore your inner and outer worlds. Mark Nepo, take us back to 1987 when your life changed forever and you as a person also changed quite dramatically. Yeah. Well, thank you. So to give some context, this year I turned 70, which is hard to believe. I, when I saw people this, this old when I was younger, I thought they were ancient. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem so old now. Um, but this was back in 1987. I was 33 and I uh, had a rare, discovered I had a rare form of lymphoma. And it appeared as a very large tumor growing on my skull bone, and both in and out. And, um, and it led me through three years of in, intense, uh, life-changing journey that I almost died and am blessed to be here at all. Uh, but for a hiccup of the universe, um, Someone else could be talking to you today. Uh, and, and several things happened to me, you know, that, that changed everything. You know, I up and 
till that time, I had not been through anything life-threatening at all or really difficult physically. And so um, I was just turned inside out and upside down. And I was in... Uh, I was teaching at the University of Albany in Albany, New York, and um, trying very uh, earnestly to be as good a poet and teacher as I could be and thinking maybe, maybe if I worked real hard, maybe I'd write one or two great poems in my life and, and forget about all that. I needed to discover true poems to live, to get to tomorrow. And so uh, several things happened. Um, you know, one was that I was raised Jewish. I, I have a great tie to the Jewish heritage, but I am a student of all paths. And it's because during that journey, I was blessed to have uh, people from all faiths, formal and informal, including atheists and indigenous people and people I never met, all offering me kindness and blessing and help of some kind. And so when I woke up on the other side, blessed to still be here, I was not, and all these years later, am still not wise enough to know what worked and what didn't. And so I was challenged to believe in everything. And so ever since then, all my books, all my teaching, all my work, I, I am devoted to what I feel is a common center of all paths, the unique gifts of each, and, and sh sharing as much as possible to lead people to their own wisdom and their own gifts. And the other thing was that <clears throat> I was a very young, driven artist before this. And on the other side, I, I, uh, my drive was gone. And it was very disorienting for several months until I discovered that I thought I had lost my gift. And until I discovered that I was now drawn to things, not driven. And not only was it more freeing and more joyous and it was quieter. So the image is one of like a, a, a very you know, strong river, it makes a lot of noise. But when it reaches the sea, that current doesn't disappear. It goes deeper and joins the rest of the sea. And so it's quieter. And that's what happened to me. And it took several months to realize that. And the, the last thing about this that I would, which brings us to, to <clears throat> what's happening with the pandemic worldwide. And I was you know, when this all started, <clears throat> I was amazed at how this brought my cancer experience back because, and I realized it was because when I was diagnosed, I went into a doctor's office one day where somebody told me, you've got cancer. And, you know, I was alarmed, incredulous. Uh, you said, you must have the wrong folder. It must be somebody <laughs> else. <laughs> and, uh, but when I left that office, the door I had come through was gone. There was no way back to life before that appointment. There was no normal to return to. And what I realized is that this is what has happened to humanity with this pandemic. The old world is gone. It, it, all of our understandingly wanting to return to normal, there is no normal. It's gone. 
And so we have to all together grieve that and accept it so we can create what's next together. It's so true. It's it's so unbelievably true. And I think relating that to your cancer and knowing that you got to the other side and it's okay is the same way with COVID that we will also get to the other side to whatever this new normal is and it will be okay. Yeah, I, I believe it will be. And I, and I, I feel like, you know, the other thing that, that this has happened in the Jewish tradition, the, the word Sabbath literally means the one day we don't turn one thing into another. Yeah. We accept the miracle of what is. And I think that this pandemic has forced us all over the world into a global Sabbath. Mm. We can't turn one thing. We can't scheme or, or plan or manipulate or control. We can't even dream that far ahead. Yeah. We are being forced to be still and accept and appreciate the miracle of what is. Yeah. What do you think is the difference between religion and spirituality? Yeah, I think that I think that um, it, it, one way to quick way to say that it's the difference between freedom and Congress. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, spirituality is the direct, the direct experience of a living soul in a living universe. Yeah. And spirituality and religion is the um, the way to teach and organize and help people toward that. And of course, every religion, if it's around long enough, inserts itself as the middleman. And it's a, where it, every religion in its original purpose is really trying to say, no, you can, you can do it. Just, just go yourself. It's it, you'll, you'll this a direct experience, and that's why I think all the great spiritual teachers, whoever you think they are, they always point people to their own spiritual journey. Yes. Yeah. So I think that that's that's the big difference, um, and. And it's and I think that all spiritual, you know, even you know, formal organized religions uh, offer offer wonderful paths. But I think I think we and you know, in our age today, um, when we have so much polarization and insistence on one point of view, you know, I really think we need all the traditions. And the metaphor for this is spring every year in spring. So you have thousands of birds and insects and everyone is born with a particular uh, yearning to get a particular nectar and pollinate a particular flower, fruit, tree, something. And because they all do that immense diversity, we have spring. Yes. Well, you know, what if the bees all were fundamentalist bees and they said, no, we all have to do it our way. Yeah. Well, even if they did, even if they insisted in it all, you wouldn't have spring. Absolutely. It wouldn't work. And I think that 
Every human being has a direct connection to spirit and the universe and life. And we need all those different religions, formal and spiritual paths and informal, even even agnosticism and atheism and science and, you know, because we we don't know which one is going to touch your Mm. soul or my soul and what we're supposed to bring our nectar to. Absolutely. I mean, similar to you, I am Jewish and that is my religion, but in the same way, I am deeply spiritual. I take passages out of the Course in Miracles that talks a lot about Jesus and Christ. And it's, I mean, the most beautiful text that resonates with me. And then my favorite poet is Rumi, who is the Islamic Sufi poet, whose work is just unbelievable. I mean, the Buddhist traditions are just phenomenal. There are just so many beautiful different religions that I take bit, and then the, obviously the Kabbalah, which is the Jewish mysticism I've studied deeply and adore. I take bits out of everything and just whatever resonates with me, that is my truth. And I think it's such a nice way to be and your life is so rich when you open your eyes to everything else that is out there. Yes, and I think this is, you know, we each need our own, uh, in a way, we all have our spiritual toolbox. Yes. And so when, when everything that speaks to us, we add another tool to the toolbox. And, and again, to, to bring it back to where we are, I think one of the reasons that, that an inner life and an inner practice, and that doesn't mean you have to have things figured out. You just have to be committed to being authentic and in relationship yes. to everything. But one of the reasons an inner life is so important is because, and here, here, you know, I'm not sure what, what huge trees you have in Australia, but, you know, here in the U.S., especially the West Coast, the great redwood trees, mm. you know, they're, they're enormous. They're, you know, they're hundreds of, some are a thousand years old and they're hundreds of feet high and, you know, 15 feet, you know, diameter or more. And I, well, I suppose if a tornado or something, maybe a redwood could be uprooted, but rarely. And the reason is that their roots are deep and their trunks are wide so they can survive storms. That's why we need an inner practice. And that's why it's most relevant during times like now, because that's how we deepen our roots and widen our trunk to survive the storms of our day. Absolutely. Something that I've heard you say, which is so beautiful, it goes with everything that kind of happens to us in life. Whatever opens us is never as important as what it opens. Can you explain that to us? Yes. So, you know, it's very understood that whatever might take take a storm, you know, or a tornado that runs through a field and or through a woods and then it opens up a clearing that was not there before. And the clearing leads people they couldn't get to before to a river and where they can settle and there, you know, and there's water source and there's all kinds of fertile ground. So the, the destruction that that storm brought is real and that may have caused pain and loss and grief. And that is one process that we as human beings have to face. Mm. But that's what the agency that 
cleared that path is not as important as the path that was opened. And so when we translate that to our lives, you know, my heart might be broken and it might, but it may be broken more open than it ever was before. And while I have to deal with the heartache, I, I need to go where that open path leads and we can get distracted. You know, what opens us may be cruel or unjust and it may deserve all of our attention to try to get justice and, and have it be morally, uh, handled. And yet we can all is a paradox. We can get so distracted for the want for that, that we missed what was opened in yeah. us. So we have, yes, there's, there's a moral obligation to pursue justice and there's a spiritual obligation to keep going on your path through the clearing that life has opened in you. It can be so challenging at times when you feel that something has arisen, your heart's been broken, or even more so like a, ch- a really hard challenge. It's that whole dark night of the soul's come and you're, in the, you're really in the weeds. It's happened to me in my life where you can see the lessons, you, you're aware of them, <laughs> but at the same time, you're still in pain. How do you suggest that you best move through that? Well, there's an there's an old saying: the only the the only way out is through. Yeah, and um, and I believe that it is that our humanity, and that is the full spectrum of the life of our feelings, and our authenticity, is the way to move uh, through the difficult times because there is a unexpected power healing power of expression when we can be truthful you know the one of the another paradox you know the 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 most powerful thing we can do when feeling powerless is admit the truth yes and then things open up a great example of this um was beethoven now, Beethoven, we know, was just, uh, I have a chapter about this in my book, 7,000 Ways to Listen. But, you know, Beethoven was this uh, unprecedented musical genius. He brought music that was never heard on earth. Well, Beethoven went completely deaf by the age of 28. The, you can imagine this was so despairing and, and depressing for him. Imagine you realize your gift is to hear music and bring it into the world that has never been heard before. And it just doesn't stop coming through you and you are never going to be able to hear it played. Oh my God. Mm. Talk about heartbreak. And as Beethoven was dealing with this, it was very depressing and very, he couldn't, he couldn't get his heart around it. And in 1802, he lived in Vienna and a you know, small, away, uh, little ways away, several miles, was a small village, Heligenstadt. And, uh, and he was going there quite like for a retreat kind of on his own, you know, to sort things out. Well, the truth is he was contemplating suicide. Mm. And he went there and, and he started what was started as a suicide note. 
admitting, I don't know how, I can't do this. This is too painful. I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. I can't stop the music and I'm never going to be able to hear it. And the power of telling that truth, of admitting his despair, was that by the end of the, the note, instead of saying he was going to commit suicide, the last lines of it are, well, I guess I'm going to go back to Vienna and make the most music I can with what I have for as long as I can. Yeah. And he folded the letter and he put it in his pocket. He went back put it in his top desk drawer, never to be discovered till after his death in his late 50s. And he that next decade is considered a decade of masterpieces. Isn't that always the way though? It's like no, no, nothing lasts forever. No bad time lasts forever. No good time lasts forever. It's we move through and usually it is after that night time of suffering that we bloom so radically and we find our gifts and our lessons and it's all wisdom. It's just getting through, moving through. Well, I think, I think that my, my experience, you know, that every human being will be given the chance to be dropped into the depth of life. Yeah. And, and we're talking about, you know, it can happen through very difficult circumstances, but it's not only difficult, you know, we can be dropped into that depth by, you know, beauty and truth and love and surprise and being held for the first time unconditionally, it, it, you know, but so it can happen either way. Uh, but when it, when it is difficulty, um, we, are changed and transformed into uh, we're kind of jarred out of our self-reference. Yes. Where, you know, all of a sudden uh, when we're broken open, we realize it's not just about us. And now the question changes. Now everything becomes a relational question. What kind of part am I in what kind of whole? Am I a bird in the sky? Am I a rung on a ladder? Am I a star in a constellation? Am I a, a, a rock in the middle of a stream that when the water goes over it, it I'm, I make the water sing? What am I? And it changes. Am I grass growing under the feet of a small child? What what am I? And that and that because relationship is at the heart of of everything yeah at the heart of everything and so i think you know when you when we're speaking about our jewish tradition i mean there's the amazing uh story of of this uh with jacob wrestling the angel in the ravine and you know so jacob for listeners who you know maybe you know don't aren't familiar with this you know jacob comes along to with his family and he's moving he's leaving and uh and he comes along they come to a great ravine and it's getting toward night and and there's there's a nameless angel in the bottom of the ravine and jacob knows in his heart he unless he faces that angel unless he wrestles that angel he he can't go on so he sends his family on. He leaves all his belongings. He, in fact, he gets naked and he descends into the ravine and night descends. 
and he wrestles the angel until it blesses him. Now, wrestling, it's not like modern Olympic wrestling. He's not wrestling in order to pin the angel. Wrestling here is that he holds on. He won't let go of the angel until it blesses him. Through the dark of night, he won't let go of the nameless angel. Mm. And that's a real symbol for us in your question, which all of us have. How do we get through these times? There's a great metaphor. We don't let go of the nameless light wherever we find it, in our heart, in in a loved one, in the world. We hold on to the nameless angel, whatever form it takes, until night passes. And finally... Finally, as day breaks, the angel blesses him. Or, we don't know, or day breaks because Jacob held on and the blessing brought dawn. Mm-hmm. And he named, then he names him Israel, which in Hebrew means God wrestler. So the nameless angel got a name. that's beautiful so unbelievably beautiful you've got a lot of amazing books mark but one of your most recent books is called the book of soul and you you say we are always part of something larger than our condition and the circumstance we are in real and consuming as it can be it's not the condition of the whole yeah so when i'm when i'm afraid and we all are afraid at times I can, I can be so overcome by my fear that everywhere I look, there's fear. Everything I touch, there's fear. And what I've discovered, mostly through exhaustion of my fear, not because I say, oh, well, I won't be afraid anymore. <laughs> no, usually it's that I just get so exhausted of being afraid, I drop out of it momentarily. Yes. And then I realize, well, you know what? under this thing called me, you know, like I'm in my study and the floor under me is not afraid and the earth under the house is not afraid and the wind running through the grass in my yard is not afraid. So while my fear is real, it rests on a larger life that is not afraid. Mm. So the question is when I'm afraid, How do I reach that fearless ground so that my fear can be right-sized? So here's a a story. This is an ancient Hindu. We'll go to the Hindu tradition for this. The the ancient uh, anonymous Hindu teaching story about fear and pain. And there's a master and apprentice. There's always a master and apprentice. And the truth is the master finds his, he, he's really annoyed by his apprentice because he's always complaining, complain, complain, complain. <laughs> so the master tells the apprentice, he says, I want you to get a handful of salt, put it in a glass of water and bring it to me quietly. So the apprentice brings it and the master says, drink from the glass. He drinks and he spits it out. And the master says, well, what's the matter? And he says, it's bitter. The master says, I want you to get the same exact amount of salt, put it in your hands and follow me quietly. So he does. And 
he has a hand, the same amount of salt cupped in his hands, and he follows the master who leads him to a lake. And he says, put the salt in the lake, which he does. He says, drink. The apprentice kneels down, he scoops the water, it dribbles down his chin, and the master says, well, he says, oh, it's fresh. The master looks at the apprentice and says, stop being a glass, become a lake. Stop being a glass, become a lake. So this ancient anonymous teaching story, you know, stories carried the wisdom for the quandaries of being alive before there were universities and programs and organized religions. And, uh, and so what does this story tell? Well, for me, what it, and why I keep telling it, it tells, it tells us that, you know, everybody will get the same, everybody will get their soul. Yeah. No one will get through life without their handful of salt, their fear and their pain. So we can't eliminate it, but we can right size it. And so some of us get a clump of salt at once. Some of us get a grain at a time, but everybody gets it. And so what it tells us is that when faced with fear and pain, we can right size it by enlarging our sense of things. Like I said, so, oh, the ground isn't afraid, the house isn't mm. afraid, the earth isn't afraid, my dog sleeping isn't afraid. So how do we enlarge our sense of things? And so, you, you know, you may, th this speaks to that toolbox. Yes. What is it? I often ask when I'm teaching, you know, what is it that you have in your toolbox for when, you know, fear and pain, they make us a glass. That's how they say hello. We, we tense up. We tighten. So if you think, hear this story and say, well, it's not good to be a glass. I won't do that again. Oh, yes, we will, because we're human. And But that's not the point. The point is, when it happens, what tools do we have to enlarge our sense of things? Yes. Do we talk to a loved one? Do we read a favorite passage? Do we listen to a piece of music? Do we play music? Do we garden? Do we walk in nature? What's in our toolbox? And this goes back to when we were talking about all the traditions offer many, many, many tools, formal and informal. And so when we uh, are in the process of our own individual practice, that involves keep adding to your toolbox. So the next time you're a glass, you have something to reach for to become a lake. What's in your toolbox, Mark? Oh, well, conversations like this is one thing. When I can stay in the river of authenticity and in the, the truth and kindness of relationship, um, it right-sizes things for me. You know, um, certainly playing, being with our dog, um, you know, certain, certain music, of course, the, the space of writing, which is really, you know, writing after all these years is really listening and taking note. So all of that is calming and right sizing for me. You say, the more you cut the branches of the tree, the stronger it becomes. The more you put the gold in the fire, the purer it becomes. Can you explain that to us? Well, we are, 
And I don't think I would have this perspective if not for what I went through. Yeah. You know, it's the suffering and it's part, how I know, know this is because it's been done to me by life that, you know, the, the, the more we experience, it shapes us. It shapes our eyes, our ears, uh, our mind, our heart. And so, um, what erosion is to nature is what suffering is for human beings. Mm. I mean, nobody's, I'm not deifying suffering. No, it's more like talking about gravity. It's like part of the spiritual physics. Like everybody will get their amount of salt, their pain, their fear, their, their suffering, their, the Buddhists call it the friction of they talk about suffering as the friction of the wheel of life turning. That's different from the pain we inflict on each other. That's different. That's another conversation, but just by living, you know, you, you, you know, we, I was one time I was down in the Caribbean uh, on the Island of Barbados and at the Northern part of the Island where the Caribbean ocean and the Atlantic ocean meet, there are these tremendous cliffs that are all hollowed out from thousands of years of the force of those two oceans. And they're beautiful and people save up and they go there to see them. Well, I don't know, we can't speak cliff language, but I imagine they're going, my God, we're suffering and you're coming here to watch us? Like we've just had, you know, pounded for thousands of years. And so, you know, we are like that. We are eroded to our beauty. We are part of the spiritual journey is that experience uh, re- re- wears off all that's not essential mm-hmm. until the only thing left is our, our irreducible beauty and truth. And, you know, life somehow has been made diffi- just difficult enough that we need each other because who can go through that alone? No, absolutely. <laughs> so we have to hold each other up to it. Yeah. And, and that's the amazing, you know, thing about life. So it's not to go, you know, I'm not saying go look for suffering. No, 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 no. But when, how do we meet the river of experience? How do we meet the things that uh, that are difficult, that that strip away all that is false, that strip away all pretense, that make us both tender and strong at the same time? Isn't it interesting how we obviously need other people a lot, yet it can be others that also cause such suffering in our lives? Well, this brings up a paradox that's very central also to, to everyone who's ever lived, and, and that's that we, we need both solitude and community. Yeah. Uh, we need, and, and so one great teacher in this are whales and dolphins, because if you, these mammoth creatures, right, they're air-breathing creatures. So even though they can stay under for a long time, they, they can't stay down there indefinitely or they will die. 
they have to break surface. Yeah. And even though they, they're immense power, they can break surface. And, and we marvel at these amazing pictures of them breaching, they call it, right? Breaching the surface. They can't stay in the surface world either. They have to be immersed in the deep or their pores won't serve. They won't survive. So this is a great teacher for us because we, the soul in a body in time on earth is like a whale or a dolphin. We need both the depth and the solitude and we need to be in the world and with others. And, uh, the question is not, will we do both, but what is the, what is your personal rhythm? Yeah. What is it that, that allows you to be most alive and that rhythm can change. So, you know, we, we need to go. And so a question uh, that I would ask uh, our listeners is, we, are you too much in the deep or too much in the world right now? Which do you need? What do you need to do to balance and to be healthy? Because, you know, even if you wanted to stay in the deep and you love the deep, just like the well, we can't. Yes. Because we live in the world and we're a spirit in a body in time on earth. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Sometimes I think I like to just stay in the deep <laughs> and just <laughs> hang out there oh, for, for long periods of time by myself. Sure. And, and, but the question is whatever, and some of us like whales can stay under longer than people. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it's, you know, it's wonderful to stay as long as you can, but mm. you have to, you have to know what's too long or yes. otherwise you'll hurt yourself. Even in your want for the most beautiful depth, uh, in the world. So this raises a relational, this is a, a, this, you know, comes from a poem by William Butler Yeats. And, uh, I can tell you what the poem, I can't recite the poem, but, but the essence of it is so important for what it raises about what we're talking about. It's a little poem called the mermaid and you can Google it. And, but in the poem, there's a, a mermaid and she meets a boy, a young man, and they fall in love. And she's so happy because she finally has someone that she can show all of her secrets to. And, oh, my, you know, someone, a soulmate. So she takes him down to show him where he lives. And the line at the heart of the poem is, and in cruel happiness, she gives him this long, passionate kiss and he drowns. Hmm. It's not a happy poem, but what, it but what it raises, what it raises is so important because the mermaid lives in the deep. She mm. can visit the land. The boy lives on land. He can visit the deep. So really, where's the relationship? It's on shore. Yes. And, you know, we live in this, this kind of, you know, hyper romantic world where Oh, you know, I should be able to share everything with you because you're my soulmate and I love you so and I so want you to see what I see and where I go. Well, what this tells us is everyone has their depth that is life-giving to them. But it may not be life-giving to the person you love. Yeah. 
So rather that changes what relationship is. It says, no, I don't, I can't expect you to go where, where it fuels me. So that means my obligation is to bring to shore the things I want to share where we both can be. So I can give you, you know, a personal example of this is my wife, Susan is a potter and we've been together 25 years and, um, and somewhere in the middle of all that year, nine to eight, nine, 10 or whatever, I was excited to share something else I had written. And, um, and she wisely said to me, you know, I, I of course want to read what you've written, but, but you have to decide, uh, do you want me to be your reader or your partner? And I immediately said, partner. And when I learned of this poem, I realized if I had insisted on her coming to where the world speaks and spirit speaks to me, which is so life-giving to me, she might have drowned like the boy in the poem. Yeah. Just like I can't go to the very center of, of what gives birth to her pottery. But we can share. So it changes what relationship and friendship is about and how we share mm. when we understand that. That's beautiful. You say our walk in the world is always precarious as we find our way between burden and grace. Yeah. Well, again, this 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 notion about well, this raises another. I mean, you can tell that I I um, paradox is a great teacher for me. Yes. Oh, I think it's the best. It's yeah, it's beautiful. It's always there, and then so therefore, our practice is how we we understand and navigate between them. And here's another one. So, you know, our walk in the world. Another thing that all all spirits face is everyone is called to survive and thrive. Yeah. And like you need two good legs to walk or two good eye. You can see with one eye, but there's no depth perception unless you have two. So you you need to both survive and thrive and they re require different skills. And we have to be good at both. So, you know, if all I do is survive and never thrive, what's the point? And yet, you know, if if we have a life built on fear, we become over practical, we become fear driven, we become scarcity driven. And then that then survival becomes our religion. And but we're never really alive. And if all we do is thrive, then you know, you and I could have this conversation on a busy street corner in Melbourne. And if we're not paying attention, we'll get hit by a truck. Mm. So we we have to both survive and thrive and again you know i ask our listeners which is preoccupying your time right now are you are you in balance are you attend are you doing what you need to do to survive are you doing what you need to do to thrive and what's a balance well only every person can know what the balance is mm -hmm. Just as every per only you can know what whether you're too much alone or too much in relationship, or too much in the deep or too much in the surface, and so, you know, 
the spiritual journey becomes this constant journey of course correction. Mm. Oh, where and and it never you know I um, my father who's now gone now um, he loved he was a master woodworker and he loved the sea and built a thirty foot uh, wooden catch that I spent a lot of my youth on. Now when I was a boy. He would put me on the tiller and the steering wheel of the sailboat and um, and asked me to focus on the compass, the directional <laughs> compass to get us to a certain place. And he must have sensed I had a lot of attention, you know. And uh, But anyway, I learned at an early age, even when you're on course, the compass is never still. Never it's always still. Right. It's never. It's just always. So this is a great metaphor for the spiritual journey. Even when you're on course, you're you're never done with the process. That's why we have to love the process, because you're always oh a little to the oh, I'm a little too alone. Oh, I'm a little too much with people. Oh, I'm a little too focused on surviving. Oh, I'm a little too intoxicated with the deep right now. Oh, oh, oh. Yes, it's really interesting because I think, I mean, anyone on their path in life has this, but when you're very aware of it and you're on that spiritual path, you realise that life can just be smooth sailing along and everything's going peachy. And then suddenly, bang, and it ain't so smooth anymore. But you get over the ripple and then it can be smoother for a while and then little things might come up, little speed bumps here and there until the big one comes. But the whole idea is that thus is life and you never stop learning and that's why having going back to that spiritual toolbox is so unbelievably important because it is those tools in the times of the real rockiness that will that will be able to ground you and centre you back to that still, still place and that place where you feel like there's no love, but you know that there actually is. Yes, yes. You know, it's um, when we're, there's a great story uh, or part of a myth in the Hindu mythology, Indra is the god of connection and um, and also the, the god of thunder. And um, But Indra has a palace in, in Hindu mythology above the earth and and Indra has woven a net around all of existence. And in this net, where there are knots that usually hold the net together, at each point there's a jewel. And if you look close enough at the one jewel, anyone, you can see reflected in that jewel, the entire net of existence and all the other jewels. And very quickly, this became a metaphor to Hindu teachers and philosophers that that's that's what our heart, when we're clear and things are, we're centered, we're like that jewel. And, and just like our biology has X and Y chromosomes in every cell, well, in every heart, you can see all the other hearts in existence and all of life encoded in one clear heart. And when we're not clear, well, then we turn back to a knot. Yes. <laughs> and the th- interesting thing is we, when we're knotted and, and tangled and, uh, you know, in our humanness, um, we can't see for the moment all the other jewels in the net, but we're still holding the net together. Mm. And then 
with our toolbox and our practice and love and authenticity, we go clear again. Oh, there it is. There it is. And so it's, and it's interesting, you know, in the Sufi tradition, there's a beautiful, uh, you know, they have a beautiful ethic of, of practice of polishing the heart till it becomes a mirror. Mm. So you can be that clear jewel again. And I think this is what it is. We, we, we go through life, we are the jewel and then we're not. Yes. And, and the important thing, I think this is the heart of what faith is. Not faith in a tradition or a doctrine, but faith in life is that when we're in not, we don't forget that we are still holding our part of the net together. Mm. And, and that in time will be a jewel again. Yes. That's so important. Mark, we spoke at the start about how you obviously had, you were diagnosed with cancer and that was a big transformation on your life. And then the cancer left your body, but it did come back. And there was a point where you were at your darkest night and throwing up blood and weak. And your wife said to you, where is God? What did you say to her? Yeah, I I was in a, a holiday inn outside of New York City and my first chemo treatment had been botched and I was getting terribly sick every 20 minutes. And this was two weeks after I had a rib removed in my back. And, uh, and I was, I was on the floor in the holiday inn with my elbows on my knees when she was, yes, in great desperation was saying, where is God? And, um, I don't know where it came from me, but I whispered here, right here. And I think that, you know, all these years of my teaching and writing have been in some way trying to understand what came to me in that moment. And I'm not sure if I completely understand it even still, but, but I learned in that, in that moment that to be broken is no reason to see all things as broken. Mm. You know, we tend as human beings very naturally to extrapolate or project our experience onto the world. So if I'm broken, the world's a broken place. If I'm afraid, the world's a fearful place. And what I've learned through that journey and since is all things are true. All things aren't fair, all things aren't just, but all things are true. And so, you know, we tend, if we don't make everything, our, the world, our experience, we go the other way sometimes and say, oh, well, if everything else is going on, then what I'm going through is insignificant. And, and it's both. So when I was there in that horrible moment, it was true for me and it was terrifying and it was painful. I didn't know what was going to happen next. And, and because I was exhausted and couldn't keep up the the uh, barriers between different perceptions, I realized that somewhere nearby a baby was being born Mm. and somewhere nearby a couple were making love for the first time and somewhere else down the road, an estranged parent and child were sitting and having coffee 
uh, for the first time since their conflict. And, and it didn't make what I was going through any less true. And yet it somehow gave me strength to know that that wasn't all that was happening in life. Mm. And so I've learned since then that when I'm afraid, I need the company of someone who knows what it is to be afraid, but I need everything that is not afraid to heal. When I am broken, I need the company of someone who knows what it is to be broken, but I need everything whole to heal. And often in our want for company, we, we just like we don't look for that clearing when the storm has opened it, we don't, you know, we so want company that we commiserate and we don't look for the things that can heal us. So here to, to tie these things together, here's a, um, there was a, Japanese samurai in the 1700s by the name of Masahide. And he gave up his sword and and studied to be a poet. He studied with the great poet Basho. Now that would be someone I'd like to interview. Like, what made you do that? You know? Um, But anyway, one of the great uh, haikus that he wrote was... um, my barn having burned to the ground, I can see the moon more completely. Mm. My barn having burned to the ground, I can see the moon more completely. And, and so this is kind of, you know, our whole conversation is there's no way of getting around or bypassing the pain of seeing the barn burn, especially let's say we don't know, but say he built it. Yeah and the loss and all of those things we have to go through. And yet the burning of the barn cleared the vastness of the sky where he could see the moon more completely than he ever had before. That's so beautiful. You're obviously an amazing poet. Can you recite your favorite poem that you have written to us? This is a poem that uh, is recent that I wrote during the pandemic, and it's called Praying I Will Find. I used to have so many plans, good plans, grand plans. In the beginning, I would be annoyed by the calamities I'd meet along the way that would keep me from my plans. I used to pride myself on how I could get back on track so quickly. But the more I loved and the more I suffered, the more my plans were interrupted by those in need. Eventually, the call of life unexpected and unrehearsed made Swiss cheese of my plans. Now, like an emperor undressed by time, I wander the days naked of plans, praying that I will find love to give and suffering to heal before the sun goes down. That's beautiful. Oh, thank you. Mark, what do you believe to be in your heart is the meaning of life? Well, I, I think that, I think the, the meaning of life is that each of us is born 
with a portion, a part of of the universal spirit. And our journey is to be as alive as possible and to join with as many other parts of spirit as we can while we're here. And they're just like the pollination we talked about. There are thousands of ways to do that. Thousands of ways to do that. And so I think by following our heart, no, I've had no I've had no greater teacher than my heart. I think that the soul, the the light of the soul simply wants to shine through us. And the way you put wood on a fire, we throw care on our soul, which makes it bright. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? I had a a mentor friend who lived to be 102. His name was Joel Elkies. And uh, he was a child of the Holocaust, an amazing man. And um, I just wanted to, I was asking him about all of his experience and stories and, and, he just said, he looked at me and he took my hand and he said, never mind that. He said, you, you have a great gift and force of nature that you're close to. Honor it and be a good steward of it. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, that just, you know, shook me to my core and I've tried to be a good steward of it. I think you have been a very good steward of it. Oh, thank you. What is your favorite prayer? Oh, my favorite prayer is hold nothing back. What's the most mystical experience that you have ever had? Well, I think that it has to be during my cancer journey when there, there was a moment I had had uh, several tests in a, at the same time. I had bone marrow samplings and spinal taps, and, and then I had to lie flat for several hours so the spinal fluid could regenerate, and um, otherwise I would get migraines. So I had to, and I had trouble lying still, so of course I got migraines. And while I, when I finally was still where I was living, in the front yard, we had an apple tree. I'd seen it hundreds of times, but I suddenly like really saw the apple tree. And the apple tree, not in words, but in a, in a, a language of presence, said to me, when you get through this, and I, and I noted it said when, <laughs> not if, um, no more no more making things up. There will just be bearing witness to the miracle of what is. Hmm. It's that bearing witness, which is so powerful. That the miracle, and that goes back to us being forced into this global Sabbath. Yeah. The miracle of what is, is more than enough. Which which reinforces, you know, one of the menacing assumptions for all of us in this life is when we think that life is other than where we are. Mm. There, there is no there, there's only here. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is a life of authenticity 
and commitment to transformation. Now, it's not that we, you know, in, in our modern world, it's all about us being great and celebrity and, you know, all of that. And no, it's really when we can let the greatness of life move through us, we are brought most alive. Mark Nepo, you are a wise, wise soul. Thank you for sharing all that wisdom with us today. I, I feel very healed by our conversation. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for letting me be a part of your good work too. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free.